Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This highly practical podcast series explores HR and management hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life people professionals. Brought to you by Actors Software, our aim is to build a better workplace for people. The HR Uprising is about collaborating and supporting each other to build the confidence and skills to rise up to each challenge and deliver real, lasting business value. You can find out more at hruprising.com or join our LinkedIn community. Now introducing your host, chartered psychologist, best-selling author, entrepreneur and speaker, Lucinda Carney. Hello and welcome to this, our flagship episode of the HR Uprising podcast. It's our 75th episode and I felt that was a milestone worth celebrating and I will be doing so with a very special guest that I'll introduce shortly. However, I wanted also to say thank you to you guys, the listeners, because without you listening over the last year and we've now overturned the milestone of 50,000 episodes downloaded and we are being listened to in 113 countries worldwide. So hello to my Kazakhstan, Kuwait, Myanmar and other countries where I've got one lovely listener um, in those countries. So thank you to everybody who's listened, who's subscribed. I'd really, really be grateful if you could tell your colleagues or friends and and share, um, share news of it because it's great to know that it's adding value to people. I regularly get messages from people on LinkedIn, Twitter and various other social media forums telling me that they found this helpful that's helped them with their CIPD or given them confidence in their career. And that really warms me up. It makes me feel so pleased that it's making a difference. So thank you hugely for tuning in, for listening, for telling your colleagues and friends. Please carry on doing so. Give me feedback if you want me to cover certain topics or if you've got someone who would be a really great um, expert or someone to tell their real life HR story. Love to hear about those. And always grateful if you can find the time to give us a review on whichever service you listen to the HR Uprising on. Now, you may also have noticed a couple of changes. I decided that it was time to be brave and put my photo on the thumbnail. Um, I noticed that other people were doing that and I thought, well, how can I brighten this up in terms of our new cover? So let us know what you think of the new thumbnail. And uh, thank you to to Rafe and Sean for um, the pictures. And then I also wanted to, I thought I'd change the introduction. So you may have noticed a new voice there. Thank you, Steve Ballam, for um, putting the Big Ant video for doing me a new introduction. So a few changes, thought good to freshen things up. I hope you like them, let me know. And I also wanted to let you know of something else which I thought was exciting and hopefully most importantly, useful to you as listeners. There will be, for the next eight weeks, a series of additional podcasts. So we'll be putting out two podcasts a week, one obviously being our regular HR uprising, following the themes that we've followed before um, type podcast. But then also on a Wednesday for the next eight weeks, I'm also going to do a series of podcasts aimed at managers. Now, I realise that lots of listeners are both managers and HR, so clearly it's relevant to both. But the reason I've done this is that I was aware that actually many HR professionals out there, particularly with the changing ways of working, are finding it challenging to support their line managers to the extent that you want to. You're often looking for resources that you can curate to make life easier for people. 
um, and just to give managers a bit of a guide as to how to work and get the best out of people in this hybrid working environment that we now find ourselves in and are likely to continue to find ourselves in. So each week we'll be taking a different aspect of people management using the PERFORM acronym and um, we'll be running through something which is just a less than half an hour top tips around a certain aspect of people management. There's also a corresponding ebook that you can download for your managers and I'll be doing other collateral other content that um, you'll be able to download in terms of resources. Keep an eye out for those. We tend to put them on the, um, the episode show notes. So uh, if you think that'd be useful, hopefully to yourselves, maybe you can alert some of your line managers to it, direct them at it. Obviously on our back catalogue, there are episodes of the HR Uprising, regular episodes that are relevant to managers, but this series is aimed at them specifically. So that's my thank you to you, um, the audience, for listening in. I thought that might help you help your customers. I hope it does. And in the meantime, let's go on and listen to our 75th episode with my very special guest. Hello and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney, and I am very excited because this is our 75th episode. We've been going over a year and I'm a little bit in awe, or quite a lot in, of, in awe of today's guest, and I'm incredibly honoured that this gentleman has agreed to join me for this episode. So I'm sure you will have come across this person. I'll keep it a little bit secret for now. Let's give you some clues. He hosts the top business podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. And he also has written the Sunday Times number one bestseller, The Joy of Work. And it's a fantastic book. It's on Audible and obviously all, all good bookshops. Um, I've been listening to it in the run up to this episode. Um, now, Bruce Daisley is his name. Um, he was also formerly VP of Twitter, running Twitter businesses all over Europe, Middle East and Africa, um, and only actually gave up um, his sort of professional work in that environment five months ago is now he's a writer and consultant published all over the place. Now, Bruce, you will have heard on various other podcasts and obviously you can listen to his podcast, which is great and really relevant to HR uprising audiences. Um, so I'm sure some of you know it already. But um, when I asked him to join, I wanted to really draw in on his experience, his, his extensive corporate experience and find out a little bit about Bruce's take on you know, HR, right? Because that's who we are. Your top tips for what makes a great HR professional department, pet peeves, all that kind of stuff. So I thought we could give it an HR theme given that we're on the HR Uprising podcast. So first of all, welcome and thank you so much for being here, Bruce. Thank you. Lovely intro. Thank you very much. So, I mean, I've introduced you a little bit yourself, but would you like to expand on that intro to position yourself further? Yeah, I think more than I think I'm a culture enthusiast. So I'm, I've been immensely fortunate throughout my career. And, and one of the, the ways that I was most fortunate is that I worked at a company at the start of my professional career. I did loads of fast food jobs, I did loads of bar work. But uh, in, in terms of my grown up career, I uh, worked in a company which was partly chaotic and partly heroic so it was a wonderful place to work it had an a, a incredible esprit de corps it had like this incredible mojo to it um but it was a little bit chaotic it was very badly run actually there was sort of there was a brotherhood of man a sorority of 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 us um that was uh that 
connected us. But it's like it, it helped me form a number of perspectives, really. It made me think, okay, when you work at a company that there's a good rapport between individuals, it's an incredible, fortunate gift. And, um, and that, you know, actually the bosses, for all what the books that you might see in the leadership section of WH Smith's, the, the bosses aren't normally responsible for some of the best parts of organizations and it so it was like this um it was this empowering reminder for me that you know we can create good workplaces ourselves and uh that we can all be sort of part of it and so you know now latterly and and look i was fortunate so i was i carried this curiosity with work and i worked at one uh, very a wonderful british publisher and radio publishing and radio firm in the peak of its success. I worked at EMAP when it was publishing um, Heat magazine had just come out and was like this transformed the magazine industry. And then Grazia came out a glory, latterly a glory day for, um, for magazine publishing, but it was a, anyone who works there, the alumni of EMAP are remarkable actually, because you know, there was incredible autonomy given to people. There's great energy to the place. The culture was this very special thing that most people sort of um, fondly recall now, you know, the, these, these people far and wide who worked at EMAP. And so I was fortunate with that. And then when I got the opportunity to go and work for Google, I was, um, well, I thought, wow, well, I've been lucky to work in good culture places that are innovative, chaotic places that have got good culture that keeps people together. And, you know, Google and tech firms are often very good at marketing their culture and, you know, and making the rest of us feel like, wow, that's, they've, they've got the. We need beanbags and um, pool tables to be great. They, they look like they're on electric and we look like we're sort of, you know, we're on a three bar heater. And so we, uh, we look at them thinking, right, okay, they've got a culture sorted. And so as a consequence, um, when I got the opportunity to go work there, I thought, wow, here we go. I'm going to be in the matrix. And, um, and so, you know, as a consequence, I just got a perspective on that. I was very fortunate that I was the most senior person for Twitter in Europe. So uh, I was sort of helpful, uh, able to build the culture for Twitter for good and for bad along the way. Um, but I was responsible for that. And so, you know, it was, um, it was like these things uh, helped me and, and made me enthusiastic for it. And it was when the culture was bad that I set about trying to become more of an expert in it and studying what's been written. And I guess, you know, the, the truth about that is that I was studying academic stuff, but then trying to be a practitioner as well. You know, the challenge often is that, you know, we can find ourselves either in periods of study where, we don't get a chance to do stuff. And I guess I was studying uh, very much with a view that how could I apply these things to make, to make people's jobs and em- employment better. So, you know, uh, so that's, that's really me, really. So you're, a cult- you're passionate about culture and you've taken ownership of culture, even it sounds like in relatively junior roles right through to then being VP really senior roles. So you've sort of led culture. That's what you're saying. So have you along the way, I mean, that's great because many organizations, you'd love it if um, the VPs were passionate about people, but there'll be people listening there who are in an HR role who may see that they are a custodian of culture and they don't have what you're talking about currently, or maybe they don't have leaders that are on side. Um, 
do you have an opinion? There's sort of two ways to that question. One is, um, what could an HR person do if they don't have support from the leadership in terms of a people-focused culture? And the flip side would be, maybe we'll go later into your experience of HR, good or bad, in the organisations that you've been in. Yeah. Um, look, you know, I, I think HR is the most important function in an organization and it, it without exception it should always be a top table um, part I used to I used to sit next to my HR person um, you know in, until like the vast majority of my time at Twitter the person I chose to sit next to was HR and uh, and she was she was formidable um, and you know I think when you get like all functions it's sort of mixed mixed ability right there's yeah. some incredible hr people and there's some hr people who've been schooled in in different ways and you know it doesn't always work um i found that you know hr for me was an important way to get a connection with the heartbeat of an organization to understand when things you know we've all been in presentations where Everyone claps and everyone laughs at the right things and then leaves and people like look at each other and sort of shake their heads and like, oh my God, that was a shocker. And, you know, how are we going to get through this? How are we going to get through this? And, you know, for me, I loved the HR being a part of the organizations that helped you intuit what was going to be shocking and deal with it afterwards, you know, so if you got it wrong, um, I think... It was just like, for me, it was just such a vital way to understand how things work. And, you know, look, you don't need to do a lot of research to look into human human motivation. So, you know, if you can get the intrinsic motivation right for human beings, the the multiplier of, of the work that they do is just is extraordinary. It's like if you can motivate people in the right ways. And obviously this is not always accepted. You know, if someone has decided, you know, quite often people who've done MBAs believe that the secret of success is great strategy. And so what they end up doing is believing that, you know, everything else is execution. Why have we got these people issues? Whereas I think anyone who's been an active participant in any good team, they will know that success isn't written by the top of the organization it's created day by day in the interactions between individuals and look yeah of course some organizations have got crazy amazing product innovations that no one else has but broadly most people have got competitors where they try to differentiate their product as much as possible but there's a near substitute for their product and quite often the it's the human ingredient that we have that differentiates our product and so you know it's uh, i always found that you know look let me be specific at twitter you know we had say if we were trying to get a celebrity to use twitter we're trying to get an x-factor judge to use twitter and they might have opportunities to use at the time probably facebook or you know instagram or um, Snapchat or whatever, and we would know that part of it was that the platform would do a job for them, and part of it was they would trust and respect the person that we were going, that we were sending into them. And of course, and it's almost impossible for any of us in any job 
whether we're building relationships, where we're do, doing negotiations, whether we're selling to someone, whether we're, you know, we're, whatever we're doing, it's almost impossible for us to, to not have some degree of human interaction. And so our view, we just set ourselves the goal that the Twitter contact was going to be everyone's favorite contact. And the only way you can do that is if you, you have that that runs like viscerally through the organization. I'll give you another example of it. Uh, anyone in HR, maybe, uh, maybe to me, the best book on workplace culture is Zane Epton's The Good Job Strategy. Do you know that book? Is I that don't. No, okay. I'm writing it down. The yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, um, and it's about retail, actually. And she's an operations professor. And uh, she's an operations professor at MIT. And what she discovered is she discovered that the retail stores that give their workers, so these are supermarket workers, right, um, that give their workers the best working conditions are 50% more profitable per employee and uh, significantly more revenue generating. And she goes in and she looks why. And she, like, you know, there's some American stores, there's store like Mercadona in, in uh, Spain, Spain, there's... Yeah. There's like these stores all over. And what she does is like she, she, she observes that they set about recognizing that, you know, of course they spend a lot of money on labor. So how can they, number one, make sure that the experience for that labor is a good one. And uh, so, you know, in some of her examples, I think I'm going to riff rough numbers here, but I think the employee turnover in retail can be up to 50%, mm-hmm. 60%. And some of her benchmark companies had employee turnover that was around two or three percent to the extent that when she first saw the numbers, she thought, oh, someone's missed a decimal point. Um, And what they set about doing is they said, "Okay, you know, a lot of retail right now asks workers to come in or did before lockdown, ask workers to come in first thing and then lunch break and then evening rush. Horrible way to live your life because Mm -hmm. you, you have two or three hours unpaid between those things where you can wander the streets. Yeah. And Mekadana and and some of the other companies, they said, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll cross train people so that they can provide value. So all the restocking will be done by our people in those breaks. And what you end up with, and like, you know, the decisions they make, it's such a fascinating book. I did a, if anyone doesn't want to read the book, I did a wonderful podcast interview with her. Um, the link on. Yeah. And, uh, and like you make, it's the decisions you make. So for example, um, firms have to decide, like retail is organized chaos. There's always chaos in retail. And it's the decisions you make that determine that. So for example, one of the, the decisions would be how many products do you sell? Another, you know, so like some firms have 400 pastors. Um, other, so other firms, one of the decisions you make is that if a customer comes up and asks you do you have orangina the, what happens next is a strategic decision so some stores it's part of their uh, customer experience that you the employee has to walk the customer to the mm-hmm. shelf and show them others say it's aisle three yeah. on the left <laughs> yeah, or it's a decision. <laughs> yeah it's yeah. a decision and uh, she said you know, the best organizations think about every one of those decisions and have a policy on it. And it's just really fascinating because what you, what you get as the end result is that the best organizations, um, they create culture really intentionally 
and you, the end result is they're more profitable. They're not just recruiting all the time. The people who work there love the organizations. It's such a brilliant book because, you know, it's one of those books where you go, I know this, my organization isn't retail, but there's nothing that we can't all learn from that. So uh, fascinating. So the point you're making really in terms of the, um, the supermarket approach, it was, it was just thinking about things from the employee's point of view rather than the business point of view, rather than that it's more convenient for us to shove you into these Absolutely. hours. It's actually thinking about you as a person, therefore making you feel valued. I suppose your engagement score would, would in principle be higher if we used that as the measure, but it's being employee experience focused as opposed to the other way around and I think we'll, I'll come on to that later because of the new world of work that we're in with sort of hybrid working I think is quite an interesting opportunity for us to be more people-centric and change things up but can I just go back to your VP at Twitter that you used to sit next to and you referred to her as being formidable if you were to sort of explain what that looks like as to and I'm assuming that was a, comp, a compliment as in she got things done um, but yeah, you didn't mess yeah, with her um, what is it that she did? What was her secret to success as you look in for an outside? If someone's thinking, what would I need to do to be seen as, as that kind of person? Yeah, I mean, the, the couple of things that I found when I studied organisations that made the best culture um, were positive affect, how, how people feel, like the mood of the, the heartbeat of the organisation, and psychological safety. And my relationship with her was characterised with psychological safety, meaning specifically that if I did something wrong, she would immediately tell me what I'd done wrong. Um, and there wasn't any sense that she needed to dress it in a certain way or present it in, hi, really good, but she'd go, that was, you shouldn't have done that. So and, straight, um, straight talking, candid. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So you just you trust know, someone when they're like that, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, most people, if you say to them, who was their favourite ever boss? Um, normally we, the, our favorite ever boss spoke straight to us. Yeah. You know, like it's so common when I say to people, tell me about your favorite boss. They go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We had so much fun with her, but you know, she told me straight. She gave me both bells when I needed it. And you know, because that psychological safety is a really critical component of us learning quicker. It's actually a feedback loop is like we do a better job when we, we learn things like that. So, um, yeah, absolutely. It was, um, it was, that was, that characterized my relationship with her. It was, it was always, okay, what do we need to do? What do we need to change? Who do we need to change? Um, and when you can speak honestly about those things, it's just makes it so much quicker. And then, then if, and also if you're on the board that you're at, was it a predominantly people focused board or was it more kind of traditional where you guys were maybe the people oriented ones and there were people who were the numbers focused and was it was it quite a diverse um bunch of people or would you say it's a particularly people oriented i mean look you know the the time i worked at twitter we were very metrics focused because the organization was on a path to profitability it was trying to add yeah users it was trying to add customers um people using the app and it, that we, the organization was single-mindedly focused on making sure that we were building a business that would exist in perpetuity. So, you know, it, was, um, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't people at the expense of performance. It was like, we need to deliver. Yep. And, you know, like the, we, 
we just had a number of metrics that were very soft metrics. But, you know, I mentioned before when if there was a speaker at a conference, our objective was the Twitter person had to be the best person at the conference. And let me tell you, that, that honor doesn't come from hiring the best presenter. It comes from empowering someone to present something that they love presenting. So it doesn't come from, you know, everyone we hired was sort of uh, white teeth and, and sort of, you know, slick power dressing. Far from it. You know, we hired some people who were like crazy, scrappy, mad misfits. But we made sure that the thing they stood up and presented we got the aesthetics. The, I, I love beautiful slides. I think it's really important. It's part of like, it's the paper that something's printed on. It creates far more of an impression than you ever imagine. Um, and, you know, we, and they had to stand up and just like, they, they'd written it, but we'd sort of given them the assets to do it. We, we used to have a rule, actually. There was a, a rule when I first started. Um, and the rule that I first started was uh, if you get in trouble for something. So we had obviously American colleagues. The rule was blame Bruce. So, uh, so if so, are you the maverick? If, no, no, no. But like you know, so if anything happened, like I was responsible for the UK office. But you know, if our US colleagues in marketing or in you know policy or in um, you know whatever it was, if uh, if they got in touch and they said, excuse me, who's approved this? Who's done this? The answer was always, it was Bruce. And like, you know, quite often I'd never seen it, but I would much rather they felt that they were they never going to, yeah. they were never going to get into trouble for it. So you they had their backs basically. So again, this real high trust kind of, uh, I say again, cause that's one of the themes that has come through lots of other stuff we've been doing recently, how important it is to have that high trust environment, which would link with your psychological safety um, for people to give off their best and to take risks um, and to feel valued, I guess, as well. Yeah, very much so. I've always said to everyone, everyone I've met, I always said, you know, oh, I'm going to be fired. So, look, you know, so if you're going to be fired, I'd rather, I'd rather get fired for doing a job I was proud of than get fired for doing a job that you're not proud of, right? I'd, you know, I'd, I'd much rather, like, you know, I'd much rather be trying my best to do stuff and be really inspired by it. And if someone takes objection to that, okay, well, I couldn't have done any better. So my view was always, okay, so like if I'd, if I'd meet my friends or whatever, they'd, you know, how's it going? It's not good, but I am going to be fired. I am but you managed not fired. to be in the end, didn't you? You had to leave yeah, on your yeah. own accord. <laughs> you, yeah. you didn't try yeah. hard enough. So, <laughs> so did you, were you there for, I mean, I said were you a maverick, but just and, unless everybody was a maverick in that scenario, which I'm sure they can't have been to, to achieve the sort of results, then did you ever come, um, come at odds? Did you ever get told off by HR for stuff that you were you were doing or? Uh, never HR, so, but plenty of other people. Okay. Because <laughs> so they always understood you've got the people the people side on you, you, you had that to put people thread running through. You had the best interest of, of, um, yeah, I mean, I'll give you an, I'll give you an illustration. Um, so, you know, I used to spend Saturday night, every night, every night, every Saturday dealing with people who were users of Twitter. We never used to use the word users. We consider it users is what people use heroin. Yeah. <laughs> what are, what's our Twitter users called? You know, the, the uh, people on Twitter was the most comfortable way to describe it. People, um, customers occasionally people used to, to talk about, but people on Twitter. But um, uh, the, anyway, but, you know, 
I, all, all Saturday night, I would get emails from people who were, you know, found my email on the internet. They were like, I've, some things happened to me. Can you help? And so I deal with it every Saturday, every Saturday, you know, when it rains, it was always worse. And, uh, Saturday nights. Um, and so, you know, I deal with this. And so as a consequence, these times where you want to make a representation to the senior people in the U S about, I'm really unhappy about the way that these people have been put in this situation and you need to be forceful because unless you're forceful, then it'll just seem like this guy, whatever, I'm just getting money emails. So like, you know, I was very, I, I saw, well, look, my job was, you know, if I'm going to get fired, I'm going to get fired for defending the, the people who use the product. You know, I'm not going to get fired for, um, or I'm, I'm not going to take the angle that these people who are real people who are emailing me in a state of unhappiness, I'm not just going to be there going, nothing I can do. Sorry, mate. You know, like we, we all know when you get on a plane and they give you bad service, when you get on a train and they give you bad service, you go in a shop and they're like, mm, yeah, nothing I can do. Like, we, got, we know we've got this visceral sense that that is a bad organization. And so my feeling yeah. was, but my job is, even if it annoys you know, the old chief exec, the new chief exec, you know, the number two in the company, even if they think I'm a total idiot, I would much rather be, be doing, making a representation of what real people are feeling. So as a consequence, you know, the platform was always in the news and it's always in the news because the nature of humanity, you know, you've got, if you've got hundreds of millions of people with a microphone to say things, it's a bit like, you know, uh, this 70,000 people go to Man United games. I guarantee this lot of bad things shouted in that crowd. And, you know, the problem, the challenge with Twitter was that we had a know, lot of bad things tweeted. <laughs> yeah. And, and you only need one bad thing tweeted and it looks like, wow, the whole platform's rife with idiocy. So uh, all the time, you know, the job was to make sure that we tried to broadly steer what was a very difficult situation we tried to steer it so it was in the interests of, of everyone. And, and you never get that right. No. But my, my view was personally, I would rather take the hit internally and the company looked like it's doing the right thing externally. So, you know, I would kick off about things and we would make the right decision in the end. Had I not kicked off about it, we wouldn't have. Yeah, so it sounds, again, I'd say it sounds really great leadership, um, examples of leadership going on there in terms of, of that, which, which makes people feel safe and, and valued. Um, if, if you reflect on any of your other earlier roles, maybe more junior roles, um, have you ever had any other um, instances with HR which have been particularly valuable or particularly, um, maybe you'd say, please don't do that, or any observations about HR along the way? Yeah, I mean, you know... Um quite often when organizations are in trouble and I've had like several um, engagements with companies where the strategy is not right. You need to make a change. You need to make a change with people or you need to make a change with the whole team or, you know, I've done, I've done um, dozens of restructures. Yeah. I've done, I mean, look, you know, <laughs> I worked in the first dot com boob. I, uh, we made a lot of job cuts, you know, and it's never easy. And so you know, to try and understand that, you know, and great HR people just are um, invaluable for, for helping to get the tone right, the positioning right, 
you know, the critical thing whenever you're making someone redundant or taking their job away is that it's all about them in the room, right? You know, so like your nerves are irrelevant and you need to deal with that because um, there you, you can't allow the communication of a message to be dictated by the fact that, you know, on a quiet Wednesday, you're upset that you're doing something difficult, something way worse is happening to them. And so, you know, like getting out of the work, making sure that you are not the message, but you're merely the messenger. Um, was critical and great HR people can help you do that. So, um, so partner with you and support you along the way. Very much those difficult, so. those difficult things. So maybe moving on to um, where we are currently, which I think having, we're recording this at the start of September and um, I'm hearing sort of the term almost like hybrid work environment now. So I'm talking to people who are partially going back to work or, but they, they may be looking to have sort of a, a mixed, some people are going to continue working remotely, but they might have some sort of mixed um, way of working and it seems to be throwing up some interesting comments and challenges whether they're real or not I don't know but maybe concerns <clears throat> and you talked about um, success earlier in terms of um, those day-to-day -day contacts generating interest and and that almost that sort of one of the ways of, con of, uh, of success is that informal contact that sort of energizes um, do you see any uh, examples of where that's being done really well virtually? Have you had any access or have you got any thoughts about how organizations, whether it's HR professionals or leaders listening to this, can uh, make the most of this hybrid working environment and be successful? I think more than anything, we need to recognize that different is different. And, you know, uh, I think most of us spent March and early April doing some pretty horrific Zoom quiz nights um, because we were sort of under this impression that it was going to be just as good to have a quiz night with Gary's mates. And, you know, we all find ourselves in these <laughs> horrific Zoom calls that can we exit without people noticing? And, um, and because we all wanted to believe that, you know, the human spirit would out and we would, uh, we would make a go of something. And, um, and in fact, it's, uh, it's, I think it's a lot, a lot more difficult than that. It's, uh, you know, I, I think, I, I honestly believe there's not, there's not great substitutes right now for human contact. And so while we haven't got the opportunity to do it, we probably need to be candid about that and work out, you know, well, what can we do? Um, sometimes a phone call can seem more intimate than another Zoom call. And just, you know, a, a experiment and, and a, a variety of that, saw in the newspaper yesterday, uh, property magnate Lord Alan Sugar um, did a big article in The Sun saying why people needed to get back to work. It's, it's quite fun to look on the, uh, the, the his company's Back to the office, website. I'm taking it. I think you've clarified this on your podcast. I think you know, back to the office rather than back to work because lots of people are working anyway, aren't they? So he's Yeah, well, look, you know, Lord Sugar's a big owner of commercial property. Yeah, so I'm I, sus sure. I suspect it's sort of... Uh, get in and use it. He's making a tidy hole in his, his pocket. Um, anyway, but he, he posted a photograph, a mocked up photograph of people in an office having a stand-up meeting, all there with their masks on. It looked terrific. I think, you know, if you'd shown someone it in January as the, as the future, uh, people might have said, I don't want to live in that. But, um, you know, like the, the idea that somehow we're going to get back to the, the, what the thrill and, and buzz, the fears of, of the office, Jeremy Hunt says, 
Um, so, you know, the, the idea we're going to get back to that, I think we've, we've got to be candid about what we can do and what we can't do. And there's definitely going to be some benefits that we just aren't able to replicate right now. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. I think, you know, it's, it's okay to say that we're still working our way through these things. But I think, you know, what, what, um, what people shouldn't be doing is thinking that uh, somehow by summoning people back to the office that they can rebuild what we lost in February. Because, you know, from all of the evidence, the, mo- the biggest data I've seen is there's a, a nice report, I put it on my newsletter, there's a nice report, um, 88% of British people say they want to work at home in some capacity. Yeah. And, uh, and over half of them, 47% of, of all adults, 10,000 people in this survey by someone at the University of Southampton, um, 47% of people say they would like to work at home all of the time. Yeah. Now, uh, th- I recognise that there's some conflict. A lot of us want to go back to the office in some capacity. But if we believe that somehow we can summon people back to paying £50 a day to commute in every day and to, um, to eat in town every day, people are going to look at you and think, genuinely i've come all the way into work today i spent 45 pounds getting here and i've not really chatted to anyone and i know there are glorious days in the office and i'm sitting in an open plan office and i can't concentrate exactly that yeah exactly that the the levels of frustration with open plan offices Mm. were colossal anyway you know at at the start of this year 60 percent of organizations American multinationals, albeit, has said they were planning to move to hot desks. So already we were sort of going to make open plan even worse. And the, the idea that somehow um, for the sake, I don't even know what the sake is, but for the sake of trying to rebuild the past, that we can go back to the way things were, I think actually is a, a cognitive error. Anyone who's sitting there trying to work out the route to go back to the past, whether it's in politics or whether it's in uh, tradition or whether it's in the office it's it's a cognitive error it's like you know you're you're trying to do something that cannot be done it's like and also i think it's a it's a misplaced it's harking back to something that we thought was like christmas would be your youth kind of thing um actually it was pretty crap commuting in to london on a regular basis for many many people and all that lost time that they've actually got back to maybe work on their fitness or or their family or any of those things why would you want to go back and, and switch that and i recognize a, a lot of i recognize a lot of us live with people we detest <laughs> but you know I, I i don't think summoning people back to the office is a reason to resolve that yeah or certainly not a big commute i think mm. i think that's that's a, that huge time waste when you think of the illogic really of people on mass sitting and trains going in and i and i yeah, I, I'm mindful of the fact that there are businesses that are affected by that, but um, the quality of life that this has switched for many people, it doesn't seem to be logical to just try and rewind all of that. Um, the, I mean, the interesting thing for me, my observation when I've been working with people through lockdown, and, and I think it's an affinity with your kind of ethos that comes through your book, um, and also one of the podcasts I heard you when you were talking about like, the four-day working week, and just a whole general piece about being more people-centric, my observation was that um, the managers that did a great job during lockdown that were um, were doing a great job largely because they actually focused on the person first when we were in the office it was easier to be transactional you could see somebody but that doesn't actually mean you were supporting them coaching direct you know giving them anything other than a passing have you done um, mm. and because of that actual distance maybe we've had to be more people 
centric um, in our approach as opposed to transactional. Um, mm. And I don't know whether you would agree with that or otherwise. And, and I, for me, I think that would be a good thing to keep. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's definitely a mixed economy of it. That some, yes, in some ways, bad in in other ways. You know, people have said to me that actually they felt more intimately connected with their close team. Um, you know, because like if if you're in a sort of small video huddle where you all see each other's faces, albeit for smaller meetings, it's sometimes more intimate. That you know, other people have said to me they just feel lost in a sea of, of you know, Zoom and and their work as quickly because there's so many people in meetings that they. The, the work has become cameras off. So you've just got these sort of, you know, legions of, of screens where people are sort of cameras off in different. And so, you know, these, I, I think we're going to find a, a far more differentiated set of company cultures going forward than we've ever seen before. Well, that's an interesting one to, one to close on differentiated cultures. Okay. Yeah. You know, just like you, you look at Glassdoor, Yes. Let's have a look at like um, housing or, you know, um, packaged goods. So like people who make fairy liquid or, you know, Colgate toothpaste or, you know, Nestle chocolate or or, um, Terry's chocolate, whatever. Um, Broadly, if you look at the glass door for those organizations, they're, they're very similar, actually. You know, people sort of describe the sector as much as anything. And apart from the line manager lottery, where your direct manager has a quite a bearing on your life um you know the sector you're in sort of determines what it's like and i think going forward that's going to be really different glass door reviews are going to say wow i spend 40 hours a week on video calls i can't feel my legs um you know sort of like it's i i feel absolutely sort of plowed down by this and other people are going to say wow i've never been more inspired i feel like uh, an autonomous uh, empowered person where I feel like I've got a team who are my accomplices, but I'm getting a job done in a really nimble way. And yeah. you're, you're going to get big differentiations. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think more than ever before, certainly it's, it's going to be a, a buyer's market for employers for the next couple of years, no doubt. But I think as we go past that, we will get a, a real glimpse into the organizations who thought, okay, we, we give it the big one about uh, employees being our main asset. But, you know, some, some firms will beg, bend to the whim of bad bosses and others will be like, okay, how do we give these people jetpacks? Yeah, I like it, love it. So if you um, were to give uh, a, a junior or aspiring HR professional coming into a role or any I'm going into a leadership role, but maybe um, someone starting out at the bottom of a, an organisation who wants to be the next VP of their organisation. Anything else that you'd say that is worth them thinking about as they give themselves the best chance of adding value, I guess, and progressing? Yeah, I mean, just um, uh, practice candour, you know, and, and obviously the, the critical thing about candour is that some people can take it and some people can't. But I think, you know, the the you'll learn very quickly, but, you know, the, the, the opening question of, I wonder if, you know, I wonder if you we we can have a discussion about how that went. Yes. Know. Oh, can I? I wonder. Would you value any feedback? You know, you can get a pretty clear sense from how someone responds to that. So that's that's it's a bit of courage, doesn't it? To stand up and actually be prepared to. Yeah, and and we know that we work with a lot of people who've got fragile egos, and because their parents never loved them, and unfortunately, our our colleagues pay the price for it. And uh, so as a consequence, some people take feedback very, very badly. 
Um, and so, you know, you, you don't want to get into a pitfall of a bear trap of trying to give feedback to those people. But, you know, I think if you can forge a relationship that's characterized by psychological safety, characterized by, you know, a candid, transparent connection between you, it's, uh, it's one of the fastest ways for that, that partner to work, to grow. And it's one of the fastest way for you as the practitioner to grow, I think. Fantastic. Thank you, Bruce. I'm really, really grateful to you for joining us on the HR Uprising podcast. I'm sure lots of listeners will come and um, listen to your podcast if they don't already. Sign um, up for the newsletter. I will get them to sign up. I'll put the links to the newsletter. And also you talked about the good job strategy. The, what's the name of the lady? There's an episode. Zeynep Tan. She's Turkish-American. Zeynep Tan. I will put that link on as, as well, as well as any other points that um, we've covered. Um, that's been fantastic. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you I so much. appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising, proudly brought to you by Actor Software, the joined up performance and talent management solution. You can access links to any of the information or resources mentioned in the show via the podcast page at www.hruprising.com. If you like what we do, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and leave a review. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising. 